welcome to the first edition of the Bubbles of Wisdom Insider Series. Uh, today, I'm joined by Arthur Chin. Uh, he is currently the UA lead at Snowpoint Studios uh, after previously leading UA at Treasure Hunt and Wargaming Mobile. Arthur is responsible for user acquisitions for titles including Legend of Soulguard and Rivenguard. And we are delighted to have him with us today to share his insights and expertise into the world of UA and what the future holds. Arthur, great to have you with us today. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. Thanks for having me on, Sam. Excited to be doing this. Yeah, great to have you with us, and I'm happy that you can be here to, to kind of share some of your expertise. I've obviously given a brief uh, introduction to yourself then. Um, was there anything else that, that you really kind of wanted to add, anything that you were currently kind of working on that you, that you were excited about within UA? Yeah, so for interesting things, uh, I recently joined a new company at, uh, called Snowprints, uh, and this is where I'll be leading their UA activities and sort of helping shape and build out the strategy, which is something that's really, really interesting because it involves a lot of uh, setting up the structures and the processes and really getting down into like the nitty gritty of the day to day tasks, but also needing to think about wider kind of strategic topics, which is definitely challenging, but it's something I, I really uh, find uh, is quite fun and interesting. Yeah, I, th I think the world of UA is kind of ever-changing and there's always kind of new challenges that are coming up, as I'm sure we're going to go through today with some <laughs> of the recent developments. Um, so I'm just going to start with a, with a few questions that, that we kind of have here and just try to get some of your thoughts and thinking on, on these kind of various areas. Um, so obviously, we get a lot of emerging technologies coming through kind of UA. There's always a lot of buzz about how companies are, are kind of using ver various uh, technologies. One of those is automation. Uh, it's something that's been a huge benefit to uh, other industries. Do you think that this has kind of a place within uh, UA? Do you think automation uh, should be used? And, and to, to what extent and, and how, really? That's a really good question. Um, there, uh, some forms of automation obviously kind of exist in the field of UA, uh, and they can offer a great deal of uh, scalability in terms of managing, you know, many different campaigns or creatives or, or kind of taking the uh, the weight off of making uh, small kind of optimization efforts. Uh, but it does require a great deal of resource and effort to sort of get right. There's, of course, market solutions sort of out there, uh, and they present, a, but they present kind of a generalized solution and can incur a cost. Uh, so it may not be the right kind of fit for, for every kind of business, for every kind of app or product. Um, I can just talk a little bit about sort of building something from scratch uh, requires not only a great deal of time and effort from different disciplines, but it also means it's an ongoing process. And uh, it also involves things, I think, like quality of life features that maybe many people kind of take for granted. And uh, it's, it's a constant kind of iterative process. And if one is sort of not able to dedicate a significant amount of time or, or people on it even, uh, then I think it's it's bound to sort of not end up being utilized to its full potential. There's also the biggest question uh, involving this in how, uh, when should a machine or a human kind of look into the automation? And what I mean by that is if you introduce too much automation, you also introduce a lot of uh, fail points, especially over, you know, edge case scenarios that are bound to spring up uh, in, the, in the messy process of UA. Um, but of course, not enough uh, automation, not enough of the machine kind of being built into it. And you sort of question, why did you sort of begin this <laughs> to, to begin with? Great answer. And yeah, I think I kind of agree with you there. There's, there is benefits to, to building within house, um, but it's obviously 
very challenging to do so, especially with the resources required to do that. And it is kind of a fine balance with, uh, you know, what is the best technology for your UA and mobile marketing and, and how feasible it is to, to kind of include that. So obviously another really hot topic at the moment is, is iOS 14 uh, and the removal of IDFA. Um, so with the kind of increased privacy measures around this and the new opt-in tracking restrictions, what do you estimate is, is the kind of impact within this? Um, do you think it's different across different genres and, and domains, perhaps? This is a extremely good question. Uh, I wish I had all the answers to this, but from what what I can gather, what I think, and my thoughts. So, I mean, taking a couple steps back, a couple steps back, there are two major kind of components, right? There's first the ATT prompt that uh, asks uh, users permission to track, but this is from both the advertising and publisher level, which you know, even if you have a really high opt-in rate, means it's going to be a throttling of possible users. Uh, who are willing to sort of consent with their IDFA being used for marketing purposes or whatnot. So even a good opt-in rate will lead to inefficiency sort of building up over time as you sort of lose a great deal of, of knowledge of what kind of people are sort of coming into your marketing campaigns. Uh, and there's also the second component, which involves more the campaign operations side. Uh, you know, when the campaign IDs are kind of limited to six binary digit codes, uh, one no longer has a luxury of tracking every single action, which would be fine in and of itself were it not for the 24-hour randomized timer, uh, which forces marketers to make the hard decision. And I think I read this actually uh, uh, by, by, on a blog post by, by Stefano, but uh, decision to have completeness or timeliness of data. Um, I think uh, definitely it's useful to have as much information as possible to be able to uh uh, measure that against you know ongoing activities, but also if you get that information really far down the line, then you can't really do anything with that in regards to op operational side of marketing UA. And I think we, we sort of have to take even more big step back to realize we're kind of living in a golden age of user acquisition, where a lot of the heavy lifting of the data analyst parts was in the Facebooks and Googles and, and all that kind of awkward. Uh, but now we sort of have to uh, take up the task of being able to accurately, well, as accurately estimate and forecast uh, what kind of uh, worth our users are in, in being able to adjust our strategy and our campaigns to effectively deal with that. And uh, in terms of it uh, affecting different genres and domains, I mean, I think a, a lot remains to, to be seen, I think, but I think uh, definitely there will be quite a big kind of difference in well okay firstly if if you're in a in, if you have an app that's really well loved and you know 99% of people are willing to give the idea of fame then perhaps the, uh, you can expect business as usual in terms of like marketing campaigns um, but if you're in gaming like I am and I'm sure everyone who's uh, watching this has seen all sorts of uh, reports and everything on opt-in rates, if you're dealing with 30% or, or even lower, if you're in a category that may not be as open uh, to giving out that kind of information, then it may require a rethinking about how exactly an app can grow. And, you know, we could spend hours sort of talking about what that kind of strategy means. But I think ultimately that sort of requires uh, people to think, uh, UA managers to think more holistically outside of just the UA bubble, you know, think more kind of growth, think about what kind of add-ons, so think about the 
ways you can work with uh, data analysts and uh, live operations and how you can create uh, or build creatives uh, in order to uh, cut through the clutter because it's going to be one of the few levers we have remaining in order to differentiate and showcase the value of a particular uh, game or app or product or whatnot. Yeah, very good points. And obviously, as you said, you know, the, the true impact does yet to remain seen. And I guess we will only find out the true kind of waterfall effect that this will have in the coming months. So, I mean, just taking it away slightly from UA, but still kind of relevant. Do, do you think this kind of lack of tracking will also have an impact on, on the kind of customer experience? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, of course, on the face level, who could be against privacy? And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, we, we've all seen a lot of ads that are of questionable moral or ethical uh, value, for lack of a better word. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it is still valuable and good to be able to have an experience on the web or a mobile that is more personalized and more catered to every person's kind of needs and, and wants and, and desires because advertising isn't going to disappear. What I believe will happen is we're going to get a very undifferentiated, a very broad kind of advertising that we experience in our day-to-day life. And perhaps, perhaps a lot of people still don't care at the end of the day. Perhaps they don't bother looking at the ads to begin with. But I believe if we frame the question uh, from do you want your – IDFA, your identifier could be used to, to, to show you ads, or do you want a more personalized ad experience? I do think a lot of people kind of realize, and people aren't stupid, they, they know that the app economy, they, they know that games and stuff rely upon uh, information and data to sort of provide a better sort of experience in that, as well as to be able to provide for kind of the revenue and the funds and the stuff that upkeeps and provides more updates. Um, and I think if one is sort of honest with that, with both the player or consumer or whatnot, then I think you'll 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 likely find a much higher rate of acceptance. Um, but I think it, it ultimately boils down to uh, yes, it, it will definitely change. Um, and I think it maybe won't be noticed so much, or maybe it will. I, I can't really sort of predict that. But I think personally speaking, people will benefit less in the long term in that regard. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And. It will be interesting to see what the full fallout is, you know, whether people are kind of for or against this as consumers. It, it does have a lot of knock-on effects onto how things are delivered and, and how things are optimized as well, um, not only being advertised to, but also, you know, the, the kind of games and apps themselves. And just going on to a, a, another topic that is quite pertinent still at the moment, um, obviously, given the, the kind of global dis- disturbance through uh, the pandemic, how have you seen this impact on kind of UA and monetization? Were there any trends within your client base that, that, that particularly surprised you? And have any kind of geographical uptake in territories who are out of lockdown earlier than others been different? I don't think what I say is, is too groundbreaking, but I definitely saw from the gaming side that people were playing longer. Uh, they, they were playing more often. Uh, and then they, as, a, as a result, uh, we can see despite, you know, the, the really unfortunate circumstances that the whole world kind of finds itself in, uh, people needed to find something to do. And as an end result, gaming in general, and from what I've seen myself, I sort of benefited a lot from the lockdowns. Um, well, was 
not surprising to me was seeing that on the country or region level when the lockdowns happened that this ha occurred. What was more surprising to me, though, was that these bumps, while they were reduced, were still at a higher level from before the lockdown. Now, whether this is uh, just a, a carry-on effect and will kind of reduce over time remains to be seen, but it was kind of interesting to sort of see that a significant segment of users still ended up playing in, in our games. And I think that may be kind of a, hopefully a permanent uh, kind of condition, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, I think it's also kind of a mistake to just assume that the previous LTV curves that we have can easily be applied to these group of users coming in since they're, they're larger and more broad, they're just simply going to behave differently. Uh, but I think it's definitely an interesting kind of uh, scenario that we all find ourselves in. Yeah, I, I agree. It's interesting to continue to, to monitor um, and see, you know, whether things will go back to almost kind of baseline rates uh, beforehand in, in, in terms of UA and, and, and the amount people are spending on, on applications in general. Um, so, yeah, definitely a very interesting uh, outcome from, from obviously a tragic circumstance like the pandemic. So I just want to talk a little bit about creatives. Uh, it's obviously important to have uh, an engaging impression with, with an eye-catching advert uh, and to test these based on performance. Could you just tell us a little bit more about your kind of experience uh, with kind of banners and videos uh, and playables and how different formats perform with different optimization and testing strategies, uh, you know, if you are involved in kind of testing your creatives um, and their performance? Uh, yeah, definitely. This took kind of a lot of trial and error to sort of uh, get finally optimized, but I think the most important part before even going into optimization and testing strategies is sort of set up the, the proper structure and process for being able to brainstorm new ideas and to, to, to set into motion the creatives being constructed. And I think what is especially important and what I found especially uh, relevant was to be able to coordinate and involve uh, all the relevant kind of stakeholders. So not only the marketing UA people, but also the people making the creatives. It could be people on the design team, everyone sort of that might have sort of a, an, an impact and an influence uh, should be involved whenever kind of possible because, you know, if we only had marketing UA people in a room thinking of creative ideas, we're, we're just going to think of marketing UA creatives. And if, we, if only the art designers are in one room, they're going to think in different ways. But no, it's, it has to sort of be kind of married together. And to help with that, we definitely establish sort of uh, common kind of language. You know, we always fell back on emotional pillars. So every ad kind of uh, evokes kind of an emotion. It could be a good one, it could be a bad one. It could even be an apathetic neutral one, which is uh, the, the worst one to have, I think. Uh, but I think by, by having like a common knowledge and by being able to share both kind of like the actual results, as well as sort of being able to brainstorm new kind of ideas and being open to sort of different influences uh, keeps the process, for lack of a better word, creative. Uh, to be able to sort of try out kind of new ideas because there's there's a ton of advertising out there. There's a ton of competitors out there and you, you want to be able to find something that kind of breaks the mold. Um, now, maybe you're not waiting for the one big shot, you know, creative that drops the CPI by half, but even if you're looking for something that makes incremental changes, it's, it's really important to have the structure sort of set up to be able to uh, not only get the ideas in motion, but to be able to feed back what you see in terms of the actual testing to, to the relevant parties so that there's a general idea of the trends or the knowledge. And there could be 
kind of different lines of creatives. If you don't have to sort of go all in on one particular one, it could be creatives that sort of appeal to sort of different groups of people. You know, maybe one creative appeals to people who like to work in teams or another one where appeals to people who, who really like the, the power fantasy of, of, of being able to uh, blow through several levels. But uh, I think those are definitely ways that you could sort of use to um, see in a way the kind of players uh, that your creatives and game attracts, um, as well as what of the values and USPs of the game uh, that is able to be, that is appealable to, to people, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's a really good answer. And, you know, with these things, it's always important to get as many eyes on, on things as possible and, and to share kind of different ideas. I think that's the best way of, of ideation and, and, the, and the best way to, to come up with new things that might relate to different people. Um, and definitely good to test those kind of approaches as well and to see what works best for you. Um, so moving away from that and just, just looking at kind of uh, UA strategy, really, um, and was just looking to find out what, you, in your opinion, uh, is the best combination of kind of SDK networks, SANS, DSPs. Um, do you recommend any certain approaches? Uh, are there any kind of exceptions and strategies? Uh, and how much budget do you think it makes sense to invest on, on these various networks? From, from my experience, uh, SANS are really going to make up the vast majority of your spending attention. And I think this is something that one really needs to get it right. And I think whether that level is 100K a month or 100K a day, I think uh, it, your product, your, your game needs to sort of be able to work on Facebook and Google and uh, before you sort of really kind of consider uh, branching out to other kind of networks. Um, and especially if you're starting out, you're, you have a smaller budget, I would say dedicate all your time to try to get that to work. Uh, if you can prove that it can work on those platforms, then there's no reason to believe that it could not work on, on others on some level. Um, that said, uh, there's always sort of declining returns and you may reach a point where the extra hour you put in, the extra 100 creatives you throw in, are not really going to make the incremental kind of changes that you need to sort of be worthwhile your investment. And that's where a lot of like SDK networks and DSPs can really help support your marketing efforts. And I, I say that support because it's something that can help uh, add to arsenal the tools that you have to sort of acquire users out there. And I think something really important, especially about this, is that they can offer really good insights and support. But I think in my personal experience, a lot of that uh, really depends on what kind of relationship you can sort of build with these guys. They have a lot of experience on their end. They can see on their back ends uh, and they have a lot of knowledge and data on what work and what doesn't work. Um, and you should sort of be able to be open and, and work with them and be transparent about, you know, what's. Uh, your expectations are. And in terms of kind of like a budget strategy, I mean, there's no like, you know, good answer for exact amounts, of course. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're sort of able to sort of dedicate roughly like 10 or 15% of your monthly budget when it's possible to try out new networks, uh, do so. And what I will say though is try fewer, but fuller. Like don't don't bother spending a thousand on three different networks or whatever. Just, just spend it all on one. You know, it's, it's really not worthwhile to split your time and attention and not get enough kind of uh, valuable insights either at the same time. No, that's, that's very interesting and it's good that you've covered it from 
kind of a, a number of different kind of companies that would be approaching this. You know, not everyone's blessed with, with, with a huge budget. And obviously people are starting out, you need to allocate that budget to, to places that will give you that kind of growth um, and then move to, to, to other kind of ways of user acquisition, really. Um, so very interesting that, to, to hear your thoughts on that and, and completely agree with you and in terms of the way you can be experimental with budget and, and how it's best to, to kind of do that on a on a good focus uh, rather than kind of spreading out a small, small budget. Um, so just going into a slightly slightly different approach here um, and UA for whale-driven games and applications. Um, and since the search for, for valuable users for kind of hardcore social casino and Forex apps can be a little bit more difficult to predict with early in-app events, uh, what UA strategies do you think are best suited um, to ascertain these users that have a good uh, lifetime value um, and knowing exactly who you're targeting early um, and whether they're suitable or not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not a, a total expert on these specific genres, but I think it's it's always going to be a big challenge to try to drive UA on products with a very, very long feedback window or one that's sort of reliant on just a few big spenders. But I think there's always like early indicators uh, that can sort of be a good forecast, a good proxy for users eventually becoming that kind of uh, star uh, spender. Um, what that events is, uh, is obviously dependent upon the game, the, the options that are available, etc. But it could be something as simple as like really early, uh, how really early that could be centers on how long they, they stay in the product, how often they use it, whether they use specific features, uh, whether how soon or how much they sort of spend, their spending behaviors. You can sort of proxy that with um, overall where your users are sort of coming from on a regional kind of perspective. And I think on a, on a more broader level, you know, UA, I think they're like the canary in a coal mine. Uh, whenever something happens, both good and oftentimes bad, uh, they're the first ones to sort of know. Uh, but that also means that it's sort of a responsibility for the UA members to work with, you know, with the product team and to show them at least, even if you don't exactly know what kind of the indicators are, you can work with them to show what kind of stats and metrics you see on your end. And hopefully they can provide you with stuff that's a bit longer. Uh, that's in a, in a longer view. And then gathering insights together would sort of help build a picture of the user journey and sort of help make the forecasting prediction of these events a lot easier. Uh, and even if you don't have a, a definitive answer, at least now you kind of know what doesn't seem to indicate or at least what could use uh, further investigations. And uh, you can sort of work your hypothesis from there to sort of test it and uh, improve uh, your product. Yeah, I think those are all very good points, uh, kind of following the data and working in a combination with with your product team and, and data analysts to, to really kind of ascertain key points which, which might indicate that, that users are spending. And I, I guess with any UA, any kind of uh, genre or app that you're looking at, having a lot of metrics um, there and, and looking at KPIs, which are really specific and custom to you, is a great way of, of really kind of assessing how your app is performing and as well as UA managers, feeding it back to the teams that, that it's necessary for them to see um, and seeing how they can kind of adapt the game to, to ensure a better experience for all uh, and obviously growth with, within the Apple game as well. So how would you recommend a UA team to get started on uh, SDK networks? 
if they are not already spending with them? Uh, and what can you expect from adding this to their marketing activities, uh, including results and expectations for, for those initial few months as well? Earlier in my career, I might have rolled my eyes upon hearing this response, but I think now I know when they say don't expect instant results, it, it, is, it is true, especially if you never run on them before. It, it, it takes time to acquire learnings. It takes time to getting used to sort of the cadence of the working relationship. I mean, is it is it a self-serve platform or is it managed? Uh, there's uh, benefits and limitations to sort of both of them. And I think it's uh, something necessary to sort of uh, put into your calculus. Uh, but you can mitigate that by building relationships with your account managers, which I alluded to in an earlier question. Uh, they have valuable insights, so leverage them as much as possible and be really open to share your own internal KPIs. And because by and large, they also are incentivized to want you to come back and not just, you know, have one big send and then you never, and then burn that relationship. No, in, in my personal experience, that's, that's sort of never, never the, the case. Uh, and I think something also important is to be prepared to spend the necessary time and budget uh, to sort of uh, prove whether this network is uh, viable or not. Don't expect 100 insults to be indicative of, of anything. Just that said, sort of make sure that both sides are clear on sort of expectations. And, you know, I've, I've heard this thrown around a lot, oh, we only need 10K to spend on this. You know, but, you know, that's 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 a whole lot of bunk. I think you t it's important to have a necessary conversation, ask them, hey, these are the stats that we see. These are our CPIs from blah, 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 other networks. Uh, that we got here is um, the row asset we're expecting whatever. How many purchasers or how many incels do we actually need? And then back calculate off of that based upon their estimations. And then you have at least a good idea of what it takes to sort of actually test this thing out. Um, yeah, and once 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 uh, that's sort of done and things are running, and even if all the major steps were kind of attempted, uh, I think, I really believe, a great account uh, manager would be someone willing to tell you that this is something that's probably not going to work or is going to need, you know, additional whatever. Someone who keeps trying to tell you to do like tiny, unimportant, unimportant, unimportant tweaks, you know, when the results are incredibly far off is really not someone I, I would have a really, you know, great expectation that they are working to for our benefit compared to their benefit or the company's benefit, you know. Um, and, you know, that, that's something that takes uh, a bit of time to be able to build that kind of transparency and good relationship. But I think those are all kind of like important sort of indicators. And yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's what's sort of most important first points, at least getting into SDK networks. Definitely. Yeah, I, com I completely agree. You know, I, I think you definitely need that transparency and, and, that, and that trust and, you know, really good points that you made there in terms of uh, planning. Uh, and obviously being patient with the results, which is, is obviously a little bit more difficult to do <laughs> in practice than it is uh, to say. But, um, yeah, definitely work worthwhile if they are working. Um, but sometimes you just need to wait to see if they're, they are going to be fruitful for you. Um, so next question is a, a little bit of a difficult one, but one that I find is quite nice to, to, to ask just because you can get some, some very different opinions uh, on this this kind of area. So. I mean, what do you think, in, in your opinion, is the kind of holy grail for a UA manager or team? What may they currently be missing from their toolkit that you think could possibly make a, a huge difference to uh, to creating their lives, making their lives easier um, and kind of helping them uh, within their UA? If I had unlimited budget, 
<laughs> no, I, I think, I mean, I mean, core, core principles, I think uh, a UA manager sort of needs to be comfortable handling data. Uh, and, and what I, I mean by that, I mean, duh, but, but this is, this is something where one sort of needs to be able to analyze trends, uh, to be really able to, um, ask the right kind of questions, have a logical mindset, being able to form hypothesis and approach things quite logically and not get, you know, put down if experiments or these hypotheses don't really give a good kind of result. It's someone who takes the learnings. Uh, write down what's uh, what's occurred and then try sort of the next step. You know, uh, obviously it's, it's great if someone can sort of write SQL and pull out the data for their end. Uh, that that's a nice thing to have, but I wouldn't say it's absolutely necessary. And myself, I, I can't write SQL uh, <laughs> worth anything. But I think being able to sort of understand and write and ask the right questions from that mindset is super important. And also something really important, and um, I think this is something that is really low hanging fruit is the communication parts and being able to have good relations uh, across different departments. This means someone who can sort of comfortably speak and understand the language from the different kind of stakeholders in the company. You know, that could be the BI team, it could be the live ops team, it could be the, the product guys, it could be the creative folks. Sometimes there's, there's a specific role in there that acts kind of like an in-between in uh, for those teams, but if, if it doesn't exist, I think uh, and even if it does exist, sorry, it, it still behooves people to be able to speak in, in uh, the same language as these folks. Um, definitely organization is super important. Um, I think there's always needs, kind of needs to be some sort of mini kind of uh, project manager, making sure that things are ongoing. And if there's any blockages, that the person is able to get the help that they sort of require to get things through. And I think it doesn't hurt to have a creative touch. You know, not every UA manager necessarily needs this. Uh, they don't have to have a background in art by all any means, but they, they sort of need to be able to think a little bit more abstractly on the motivations and messages of the product and creatives. And, you know, being able to drive into sort of the primal kind of motivations for the game, for, for the, the videos, the banners that we use. Um, and that's, that's really kind of helpful to always have that more uh, creative side to sort of balance out the more data-driven uh, mindset that I think most UA managers are kind of leaning towards. Um, and I think I've, I've been really blessed and, and lucky that I was always able to work on a team where honesty and transparency were, were front and center. For myself personally, uh, if someone makes a mistake, I would rather work with them and try to find a solution rather than, you know, if they just try to hide it and try to fix it without my knowledge, you know. I think having a good team dynamic means being able to approach people uh, for problems. I think a, a really big sign of maturity is being able to admit when you're stuck or when you don't know, because we're human beings and we're limited by what we're able to do. And there's nothing sort of wrong to be able to kind of uh, depend on each other, you know, as, as a team. You know, granted, uh, one should also be sure that they're constantly learning and constantly taking these lessons to heart. Uh, but it's it's super, super important, I feel, that uh, a, a UA manager, a UA team is sort of being, is able to sort of have that kind of relationship. And uh, most importantly for me, it should be fun. You know, <laughs> honestly, if, if you're not having fun uh, doing UA, I mean, seriously consider whether it's because of the environment that you find yourself in or maybe it's not something that you, you really kind of like because... If you're going to spend eight hours every day or more doing something, 
it should at least be something a little rewarding, you know, or at least you should enjoy the people around you. Um, so, so seriously consider uh, trying to, to make these things as rewarding, as fun as it, as it can be. And uh, yeah, I think those would be kind of the most important things in my mind when it comes to sort of uh, good, well-managed uh, UA thinking processes. I think that's a really good answer. Very, very interesting as well. You know, really focusing on the internal side of things and, and focusing on cultivating the correct culture, I guess, and, and making sure that everyone's kind of on board with the ethos of the, of the company and, and comfortable to communicate not only within the team, but also across departmentally as well. You know, really means the kind of synergy of the, of the company itself is really always moving forward. And I think you're right, you know, we need to have empathy for, for other teams and we need to understand yeah. why they're doing what they're doing. And, and, and we need to work together as much as possible and, and share insights as much as possible. And and yeah, I, I think you're completely right there. If if someone has kind of failed at something, you know, it, it's more beneficial to, to kind of own up to that and, and work through it together um, rather than kind of shy away from anything. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting answer and, and a very um, important one as well. Um, and a good key message to kind of take home and and, and really try to, to embed core concepts w- within your UA team and within your company more and more in general as well. And I think just to add briefly to that, I think uh, that honesty part and that uh, transparency also kind of feeds into having a more scientific and logical approach because if you're not afraid to admit when you don't know or when you fail or whatever, um, it, it encourages you to sort of uh, try next time, but if you have a culture or a team mindset that kind of, you know, points fingers or is is uh, digging their heels in on these things, it's it's naturally going to encourage people to not want to try things that are outside a very narrow band of best practices. Which I think you know is something that's important, of course, but it's it's it leads to over specialization, and you're never going to be able to take uh, your UA to the next level, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's important to, to take risks and, and almost in, encourage uh, your team to, to kind of take risks with things. As long as they're learning uh, from what they're doing and as long as you're learning as a team, you know, it's a very beneficial way to, to move forward and, and, and find out things that you not you wouldn't necessarily know um, if you were being very careful. Um, so, yeah, I think they're, they're all great points, Arthur. Thank you very much for those. How does UA differ that spend differ depending on app monetization model. For example, ad revenue versus IAP versus a, a subscription model. Do you see differences in, in UA strategies or any strategies that are more beneficial depending on the certain monetization model? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's always like these little edge cases, uh, but I mean, I think from the very top level, we, you could, it's obviously going to matter what kind of appropriate benchmarks when it comes to uh, creative performance or how different kind of channels do. I know especially for networks, they may have different kind of apps in their, in their system that perform differently based upon the genre that may kind of influence uh, where one kind of approaches this. And it also, I think, kind of whether one has a very broad or very narrow audience, and especially depending on the different payment model, monetization models, uh, obviously the payback window is going to differ quite a lot uh, between each. And it asks the question, you know, what the appropriate window to sort of form strategies around. You know, I'm typically ad-driven games, you know, I, I don't have too much kind of experience in them, but uh, by and large, they uh, have very short windows and they also require a large scale to sort of be able to be profitable. 
So typically, there's a much broader approach, a much broader appeal, both in UA and in the game design uh, in general. Uh, whereas for uh, games that rely on IAPs, I think something special that they should keep in mind is just how whale-driven that the model is, um, and either to sort of increase the scale to be able to find more, or to, uh, to be able to sort of try to mitigate these spikes and not to mislead the strategy. Um, as for subscriptions, that's particularly tricky, but I think this is something that really, really benefits from close working relationship between the UA departments and uh, the other kind of key stakeholders in the company, uh, because you know you, you go in and you see a, 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 an app, you know, asking you for uh, a six month subscription. You know, a lot of people are naturally going to be turned off. But there are things that one can sort of do to try to firstly understand, you know, the sign up flow, the, the messaging, uh, the incentive uh, for why one would subscribe or not. And for one thing. Uh, UA can sort of fine-tune the strategy of the audiences or even the creatives to have as uh, neat and as a clean kind of experience uh, in, in that regard. Definitely, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's really another one where you have to follow the metrics as much as possible and, uh, and follow follow the data, um, which does actually nicely tie into the next question. Um, so what are the three plots that you regularly monitor in order to give you a good sense of what is working or not within your game specifically? From a marketing UA perspective, I mean, nothing spectacular, but, you know, obviously ROAS uh, cohorted over a few uh, short kind of time periods. Uh, CPI, but I mean, CPI is more like, you know, a general kind of reading. It's, it's, it's something that's useful at a glance, but a lot of it, a lot of other metrics kind of important. But I mean, to answer the, the top three, it would, of course, be sort of CPI. And of course, something also important, at least for, for myself, would be kind of like uh, the, the payer rates, or more specifically, you know, the first payer rates uh, that has sort of a big kind of indicator upon the health of the games that at least I, I run. Uh, but for the company in general, I mean, as uh, uh, a million different companies, and I'm sure you'll get a million different kind of answers, but I think something uh, very important is you know what the what the daily uh, what the MAUs are, what the DAUs are, what the what the revenue is, what the LTVs are, and I know I'm just uh, throwing a bunch of these numbers out there, but it's I think it's difficult to sort of confine it to just three specific uh, metrics to sort of fall back on because it's it's unfortunately uh, not as easy as just looking at three kind of specific things and then gauging kind of the health just just from them. It always naturally leads to too many others. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree. And uh, yeah, the, the, the final question that we, we've got with you today um, is actually also vaguely related to that. Um, and it's around kind of forecasting LTV. So, you know, what do you use um, to, to, to forecast your, your LTV? Um, and how does that work kind of the forecast versus other metrics? I mean, I, ideally, uh, you would have historical data from, from your other games that you can sort of use um, as, as sort of a proxy, especially if they're in the same genre or even a similar genre to give you a range to sort of aim for. Um, but oftentimes we don't really sort of have that sort of capability. Um, of course, you can sort of make some rough estimates using Sensor Tower at Bany and checking out different competitors and uh, what kind of uh, revenue they sort of seem to get like a rough kind of range. Uh, but I think a, a, a lot of effort and a, a lot of value can come from doing that monetization testing in the soft launch, building up that data and then using that to sort of help forecast out to a future point in time and see when, if it can ever cross that break-even points, uh, depending upon the marketing activities that you're doing, and the constant sort of test this. 
to see that with each iteration of the game, with each update, that uh, these metrics uh, can sort of be improved upon, or maybe it needs to sort of be looked into and see if those were uh, valuable kind of forecast targets or not. And also important to make sure, you know, seems pretty obvious, but separate organic and paid UA as they can be wildly different, uh, separate by network or or even by geo, if you can. There's, of course, a great deal of work, but that's the, the most proper way of sort of being able to get like a very accurate read of what kind of targets it should have. But of course, I, I understand for, for reasonableness and realism uh, and the time available in a day, then you may have to use something a bit more generic. But if you can at least get it down to between organic and uh, paid UA is, is the most sort of ideal. And uh, you may be limited past a certain point in, in time, especially in, in soft launch, but at the very least, uh, you can generally rely on optimizing against your kind of earliest cohorts. Um, and then if you can sort of get that right, uh, then you set a really good base foundation. So uh, if you can open up the funnel as much as uh, you can from the top, uh, you're inevitably going to have more people eventually reach to the later stages of the game. Now, if, if it kind of drops off at a certain point, uh, if they don't mature to, to what you originally forecast, well, that's something else to sort of work on. Uh, but it's some, I believe that's a problem that's better to have compared to having a really small funnel uh, near the top. Uh, because I think that's a sign of, of, uh, of bigger kind of issues in play. Um, but in any case, I think the most important thing is to realize it's a living document. It's to sort of take it in steps. Unless you have a game that's been out for 10 years and you can reliably, you know, use the LTV from there to, to, to base your strategies on, it's going to be something that's constantly edited, constantly updated. And, you know, with iOS 14 coming around the corner, uh, it's going to be a lot harder, at least on iOS, to sort of uh, be able to predict this. Uh, but I think there's still things that one can sort of do to make something that's going to be used almost like a North Star, at least from a marketing UA kind of perspective. Yeah, all great points there. And yeah, especially at the end, I think it's good to have the North Star, as you put it, it's good to have like a kind of aim. And, um, you know, as you said throughout, it's good to revisit that and, and see, you know, what the product updates are bringing and, and what it looks like in, in different uh, geos and everything as well. Um, but I, I think it's, it's an important document to have, um, an important document to, to kind of follow along with. Um, and just plot where you are and, and wh whether what you've been doing is working or, or not as well as you thought. Um, and it, again, I guess it's testament to what we were talking about earlier with the kind of not being too afraid to fail if, if the LTV isn't kind of perfect and the forecast isn't really making it, you know, at least you can, can learn from that and, and take it into future iterations and future games um, and, and go with a different approach. Uh, so yeah, I definitely think that was a very interesting answer. And, and, and yeah, thank you very much for for joining us today. Um, there's been some, some amazing points that, that you've shared with us and, and some great insights. And I, I think they'll be very kind of valuable for, for our audience to, to hear and, and hopefully they'll, they'll be able to share some of their comments as well, um, which would definitely be, be, be nice to hear. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for having me. And I think uh, I don't have all the answers, I think, for some of these questions, but I think it's definitely questions that are worthwhile to ask. And, you know, it's really cool that you guys set this up and uh, to be able to have like an open conversation and hear from different perspectives. And I think that, you know, we're all kind of, you know, whether we're competitors or not, so we all kind of benefit from additional kind of uh, knowledge in this field so that we're all kind of better able to 
uh, deal with the upcoming kind of changes and to be able to navigate what it means to be UA at this point in time. I think there's always going to sort of be a need for a uh, UA manager, um, but what that kind of role and scope will be, uh, who knows? Maybe a robot will take all our jobs at the end of the day, but I think it's something definitely that uh, we can all benefit from being able to have these frank and open conversations. Definitely, and I think one of, one of the things people are missing a little bit at the moment is that kind of connectivity in, in person and that, you know, App, app summits have been huge um, th- through the past couple of years. I'm, I'm sure you're kind of missing some of those kind of face-to-face interactions and, and speaking to other UA managers. So, so it's good to be able to kind of offer this platform to to share your thoughts and, and hopefully we'll have a few people kind of reach out to you and, and, and trying to, you know, pick your brains a little bit more about, about how it can kind of help them themselves um, with their UA journey. So, you know, really appreciate you being with us today and, and great thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Perfect. Thank you, Arthur.